This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Uh, my name is Aaron Teague. I am one of the elders here at the Trails Church. Um, it's an honor and privilege to be before you today. Um, if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 50. Jonathan Gibson, uh, who is author of Be Thou My Vision, a liturgy for daily worship, opens his book with this line, and I want to read it to you right now. It says this. It says, It may come as a surprise... But there is no explicit command in Scripture to have a time of worship each day, either as an individual or as a family. And yet it is a habit that every Christian believe or Christian family is encouraged to practice. He goes on, however, in the remainder of the book to do an amazing job of eloquently breaking down and explaining the implicit and implied uh, daily worship and worship of God all throughout Scripture. And I want to share just a few of those this morning to set the stage. First of all, in the very beginning, um, God says he chose Abraham so that he might command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. That's Genesis 18, chapter 18, verse 19. God commands Israel to love him with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength. And that is a love that is to be expressed by the parents taking on every opportunity during their day to teach their children the words of God. Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 6. After Moses dies, God exhorts Joshua to be strong and courageous by being careful to obey the laws of Moses. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. As Isaiah is awakened, quote, morning by morning to listen to God's instruction before he takes on the day and the work that God's called him to do. We see that in chapter 50 of Isaiah, verse 4. And in Amos, um, God says that he does not do great work in history without first revealing his secret to his servants and his prophets. That's in Amos 3, 7. And then finally, in the Old Testament, even in the book of Psalms, where we're studying right now, we see um, as a church there contains this similar idea of personally hearing from God and his word before passing on the revelation of his word to others. Um, He tells Israel to tell of the glorious deeds to the next generation. That's in Psalm 78, verse 4. And then many, many examples of meditating on God's word and his promises. Uh, In Psalms chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 96, and chapter 119, if you want to start. But this continues as you move into the New Testament. And Jesus frequently asks the Pharisees, Have you not read? Implying... Uh, that we should be reading the Old Testament ourselves. We should be studying and worshiping God through reading. Uh, He says that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 3, and a couple of times later in Matthew and then in Mark as well. And then as you go on, um, even corporate worship is implied, um, even in the Lord's Prayer, as it starts off in the plural form, which is our Father in heaven. And so um, Jesus goes on to say we should also pray alone in private. Uh, You see that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And so the pattern of worship just continues throughout. Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 12, 1. Uh, Present our bodies as a holy sacrifice. Romans 12, 12. Be in constant prayer. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And finally, one more for you, if I haven't 
made my case enough, I'll throw one more, which is Peter writes to the Christians in 1 Peter, and he says uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, that uh, we should be like newborn infants that long for pure spiritual milk. And so as I lay that foundation in our reading today, I think it's important because what we are going to see is God shines forth and makes a proclamation. He makes a proclamation to his people about the nature of worship and their worship. Um, He will also, uh, we're going to also see a warning to those who do not call upon the name of the Lord. And so the title of the sermon today is True Worship. And I've broken the summary down of the reading into three um, three topics, three subjects rather. What I would say is, um, in the first one, I'm calling it God's righteous judgment on display. We'll see that in verses 1 through 6. We'll see God's people gathered for their good and his glory as the second one uh, in verses 7 through 15. And then in verses 16 to 23, my third point will be a warning to the unrighteous. And so, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read, starting in chapter 50, verse 1, God's word. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds on the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. The things you have done and I have been silent and you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forgot God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. In the opening scene, I think it's helpful for us to actually uh, understand the Hebrew word for that, which is El uh, El Elohim. Easy for me to say. 
Uh, it says, Jehovah hath spoken. And the translation, I think, is important for us to see because it describes the name of God in three different ways. The first is it means great and mysterious. The second is it's the strong God. And the third is the only, the self-existent God. And so here's God coming before everyone and calling all peoples across the entire world from the rising of the sun to the setting to stand before him. And so the Lord is not only represented here as speaking to the earth, but by coming forth to reveal his glory to the people of the world. The perfection of his beauty is on full display here for the entire world to see. His shining forth completely blots out the sun. God is described as coming out of Zion. You see that at the very beginning there. And I, I want to highlight that the word Zion in the Old Testament is used over 150 times. And what it means is um, it's referring to the place on earth where God has chosen to make his presence. So the city of David was an example. Uh, another quick example in, in chapter 20 of Psalms, uh, verse 2, it says, May the Lord send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. A second one in Psalms, chapter 3, verse 4, says, I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill, which is known as Mount Zion. And so what we're seeing here is God is in the presence of his people. Before him is a devouring fire around his feet, and a tempest is a word that we don't really use uh, today as much, or I, I don't, but it's high winds blowing all around him. So it's this attempt to describe the glory and the magnitude of him shining with fire and wind all around him. It is an incredible sight to behold that I cannot even begin to describe you with my, my finite mind. And what we see here is that the heavens above are called in uh, and the men and the people of the entire earth are gathered to witness God's holiness uh, everyone sitting here today, I imagine if we're the entire world gathered, that not even your neighbor would be whispering to you anything. What's going on? What's next? Nothing. And I believe that because in Habakkuk 2.20, it says this. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Uh, when God was talking to Samuel, he said, God looks at, rather, God looks at the inside while man looks on the outside. And this is a perfect example of there is no amount of hiding sin or anything here. Everything is fully exposed, and we are all at the judgment seat. And so our hearts and deeds are on full display for the Lord. Those that are not his people, those that are his people, the entire, whole, uh, the entire earth is gathered. And then a proclamation is given. And we'll see here that God calls to heaven. And he says, go gather my faithful ones. Go gather the faithful ones that made a covenant to me, with me by sacrifice. Go out into the whole earth, gathered where they are scattered, and bring them to me right now. Only those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And have them stand before me first. And so, in this scene, we see the courtroom is set. The judge has taken his seat. The beauty of God's glory is on full display, and now he summoned his people to come stand before him.
And so you might ask, well, where does worship begin in these first six verses? Well, it begins with God. Our worship begins with a holy God in sight, in our minds, in our hearts at all times. So as a church, what, what are we to do with this? Well, First uh, Peter actually tells us in chapter 4, 17 through 19, he tells us, he starts off and he says, well, for the time of judgment, when it begins, it will begin with the household of God. Uh, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not, do not obey the gospel of God? And so um, what we should be keeping in mind at all times and in our hearts is um, the beauty of God and the holiness of God. Starting in verse 7, we see, hear my people and I will speak. So God begins to speak to his people at this point. They're all summoned in front of him, still silent. He says, come to me in front of me. I will testify against you. I am your God, your God. And so the first thing, it's important to understand that first thing he does is he reminds them, I'm your God, you're still my people. You have privilege here. That has not changed. However, you also have responsibility here, and that's what I'm about to address. And so he leans into him here, and he says, um, he tells them first what they're not being judged for. He doesn't start with what they're being judged for. He starts with what not being judged for. And he says that um, you consistently worship me. In fact, continually, you bring me these burnt offerings. You bring your bulls. You bring your goats. You're always doing that. That's, that's not what I'm addressing here today. So let's just get that clear and out of the way. Um, what you're doing in that worship, though, is meaningless to me, and I will not accept it. He now cuts to the heart of the matter of, of worship. And I, as I was reading this and thinking about it this week, you know, I was thinking, well, they're, they're walking bulls up to be sacrificed. Like, how would you not be reminded every time you did that, right? But I guess just like anything else in life, it just became so rhythmic for them that they didn't, they, over time, they didn't even know. Fathers weren't passing it on to their children. Worship began to become more about ritual and routine. If I give my goat, God's happy. Seems to work that way. Over time, it even grew into, well, I think maybe God needs a goat from me. He may be hungry. And so the rhythms here um, have totally flipped on its head as to why they're even doing that. And so... What God intended for their instruction, they begin to make that their confidence. And so, I want to just think about that um, for a second and the, and the foolishness that that might be to think that they would just come in and sacrifice a goat, that God would actually need that. But that's, that's exactly what's, what's happening here. Um, God says it's foolish too. And that's where he cuts straight to it and he says... Um, let me remind you that I don't need anything from you. I am a sovereign God. I don't get hungry. I don't get tired. And by the way, if I did get hungry, I would not come to you. Every cattle on a hill, every bird in the air, every mouse in a field, in me, all things live and move. I can provide any need if I had a need. And so I think it's helpful for us as a church to think about that. If you're visiting today for the first time, we didn't sacrifice a goat. If you come next week, we're not going to sacrifice a goat. That is not what's happening here anymore because Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. But I want to really think about this from the heart level. 
because we have the same heart tendency that the people of God are demonstrating right here. That we can show up each week, that we can pray and sing, give of our abundant riches, and go on our way and think God is happy. And I just think it's important for us to recognize that, that um, that is not what God is looking for. Now, coming to church regularly, you should. I would encourage that. Uh, give abundantly, yes, please, you should. These are all good things. In and of themselves, those are, those are good things. In fact, that's what Jesus said. I'm not, I'm not rebuking you for that. That's, you should be doing that. But you've got the order all wrong now. And I, I just don't accept that. And so... Um, as we look at this, um, what we see is uh, we come back to the question in this and go, well, well, what is true worship? Well, God wants for us is to have a right understanding why we worship to begin with. That at one point, we were eternally, as Christians, eternally separated from a holy God. And that because of him and nothing we did, giving up his only son to die, live a perfect life, and give the ultimate sacrifice... We now have a way to be not only his people, but I think it's important to see that we're called a royal priesthood by Peter in 1 Peter. In fact, specifically, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that's, that's what he calls us. So this is still a royal court, and we are still his people, seen as royalty, but we're, we're, not, we're still needing some, some guidance here. And so... Um, he talks to us here about um, you have privilege, but you have responsibility. And so a little more definitively, you know, what we'll, we'll is worship here? It's, it's, it's worship with thanksgiving and, and gladness in our hearts. That's what it is. And so he reminds them, and you see that in verses 14 and 15. He reminds them, after this uh, discussion with them, he reminds them that you can call upon me. Call upon him in the day of the trouble, and he will deliver us. He will never forsake us. Call upon me, and I will make things right. I will never forsake you. So application is, um, just a reminder, worship is designed to draw our hearts to God through the reading of his word, through praying, and through singing. And the outcome is that we should have thanksgiving in all that he's done for us. That is pleasing. That is pleasing to a holy God. The final eight verses in this chapter are ominous, but I want to just pause for a second and remind us that Every word in the Bible is for our good. And we have a loving, holy God. And he loves us so much that he doesn't even withhold the tough stuff from us. And so as we read this, here's the scene, here's the setting. God has finished with his people. He has pushed them aside and he said, now I'm talking to the rest of you. And he pivots here. And he moves from speaking with the neglectors of his covenant and he focuses his attention on the breakers of his covenant. And at this point, I can only imagine the heaviness of the conviction of their spirit knowing they have no defense. I mean, there's no defense. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. It was finished for us as believers in Christ. When he said, it is finished on the cross for those who do not, it is finished for them here. Their spirit is condemned. The time has come. God doesn't mince any words. He lays out a charge. He says, first of all, he starts with a question. He says, what right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? And the interesting thing about that is um, 
in my mind, I would have thought he would have just said, well, all of you have just completely rejected me from day one. But he's actually saying these are people that have actually um, said they, they give bowls, they sacrifice, right? They come to worship weekly, they sing songs, they pray, they, they generally um, claim to be Christian. Uh, they teach the law and yet profane it themselves. They worship each week, but in actuality, they despise discipline. And we see that clearly in verses uh, 17 through 21. He lays it out. He says, they hate discipline. They callously toss God's word behind them as they please. I, in my head, I'm just imagining, I just ate a candy bar and I'm throwing the wrapper. I take what's good for me, what I enjoy, and I throw the rest out. The second thing is, it says they approve of thieves and they hang out with adulterers. There's, there's no remorse for their sin. There's no repentance. Uh, third is they give their mouth free reign for evil. Uh, They're deceitful, they're gossipers, they're slanderers. Um, The phrase of uh, even your own brother is to really hit the point home that no no one escapes your mouth. No one escapes your tongue. You speak evil against everyone if it's for your own good. And so it's clear in that statement that um, God's showing us that these people had no love for God. And uh, so he goes on here, and he, and he uh, goes into verse, um, the next verse immediately, and uh, he says, While you've been doing these things, I've been silent. And because of that, you thought I was one of you. In other words, the wicked man ran around and said, Well, I'm not really hearing from God. Maybe it's no big deal. Or... Maybe I really am a pretty good guy. I don't need to repent that much. I mean, God's grace is sufficient, right? Or, you know, I show up weekly and I give and I, yeah, that that pleases God. Um, Maybe God actually, in the end of all this, isn't that much different than me. But he makes that crystal clear in, in verse 21. He says, and now I rebuke you and lay charge before you. And that's it. The defense is laid to rest their case, and there is no case. The penalty for despising my covenant is described in verse 22, God says. I won't read it here, but it essentially just says, there'll be nothing left of them to redeem if there was redemption after this. And so it's a heavy, um, it's a heavy verse there, but I think there are uh, three things that I really want us to take away from this. Uh, first of all, as truths for us to let sit in our hearts, is that, number one, God's silence on sin does not mean God's approval for sin. Secret sins, public sins, we are witness to the whole world's sins on display all day, every day, all the time. Murder, theft, Sexual debauchery, selfish gain. And if you're a Christian, likely you hear this question sometimes from people that say, well, how could a good God let these things happen? And I think the answer is clear right here. He doesn't. One day he will break his silence. And every one of these things will be accounted for. The second thing is no amount of ceremonial worship or theological accuracy can cover for an unrepentant heart. Let's take pride in 
understanding God's word and the truths of it word by word, that's not the point. The point is let's not become so astute in our study that we think that is the actual end of the means to the end. The means to the end is to have a repentant, humbled, thankful heart in the Lord. And no amount of showing up to church or any ceremonial worship will cover for that. And the third thing is, God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his covenant. The wicked will perish. You could write that down. The wicked will perish, and you should, because that's exactly what God says in verse 22. He says, mark this. He says, mark this, lest you forget. So we, as a people of God, should mark this as well, lest we forget. And so, it's a, it's a heavy text, um, but there's a final verse in here that almost doesn't seem fitting, but it fits perfectly. Um, and the final verse is in verse 23, and it says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And so for those of you who have a breath in their lungs right now and have not called out to the Lord, verse 23 still applies here to you. You have time to call out on the Lord and put your faith in him, and he's faithful to receive and forgive. He says that. I will show the salvation of God to you. For the church, here's what I think the application is. We should be praying for the unrepentant hearts. And we should pray that the Lord show salvation to them and mercy to them like he showed us. We should not let hate grow in our heart towards them. We should love them and know that if they do not and they keep on with their hateful ways, God's the judge. We do nothing but pray. We should do nothing but pray and share the gospel with them. And pray for hearts to turn. And in doing so, may we have thanksgiving in our hearts to offer up true worship to God. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your beauty. We thank you for describing the scene here and what's to come, Father. We thank you for the covenant that you've made with us, Father. And we're thankful that You are patient as we continually struggle to even remotely hold up our end. We thank you for Jesus who paid it all and did it for us. May we keep that understanding, rightful understanding of you in mind at all times. And Father, may the people of this world, may they turn to you, may they be repentant, may you show them the way of salvation. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.